Andre's defense is superb, but sooner or later Hugo's rapier will reach his heart. If it does, I'll kill him. You've caught a Delta woman. What are you going to do with her? This woman was with the Delta men when they raided our plantation the other night. I captured her, but she escaped by hitting me over the head with a rock. This is a very serious charge, Monsieur Tulane. When I pulled her off her horse, this woman injured her right ankle. Perhaps Monsieur would like to examine the evidence. was mistaken, no? Put on your arms, you Delta rats! Welcome back to The Bloody Pit. This is episode 129. I hope. I hope I'm getting the numbering right. Uh, and uh, joining me once again for the first time in far too long is Derek M. Cook. How are you doing, Derek? I prefer to be announced as Monster Kid Hall of Famer, Derek M. Cook, but I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Please don't take that out of context. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, I'm doing man. good. How are you? You should be touting your your uh, your award. I mean, I, God knows if I won one like that, I would be. I mean, that's, that's excellent. That's right. This year, uh, they just announced the Rondos a few days ago, and uh, you, uh, what what is the full year? Monster Kid of the Year? Is that right? Uh, Hall, just Monster Kid Hall of Fame. And I, I really am just kidding. I, I'm not. I'm. You and I have been talking for like an hour and a half before we started recording, and a big part of that was me telling you how much I'm still pretty stunned and don't believe it happened. So please, I'm <laughs> kidding, folks. I'm kidding. Am I allowed to joke about it yet? I'm just I'm yes, kidding. Yes, <laughs> you can joke about it. And at the same time, I will not tell everyone how you had to. Uh, you had to be talked down from forcing me to call you Sir Derek. And I had to explain the way royalty works and how this is the United <sighs> States and Sir Derek. I mean, even if we spelled it with an E instead of an I to kind of make it a fantasy thing, it doesn't work out that way. I'm just not <laughs> doing it. So no, no. Why well, are you going to put me on blast like that, man? Come on. Hey, just just <laughs> pretend that I'm going to edit this out of the show. It's not going to happen. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, okay. There you go. So, so Derek, uh, long ago, back before both of us were born, we talked about <laughs> some of <weird> castles. <laughs> Oh, now, I miss podcasting with you, man. This is awesome. <laughs> this is this is how we return to the we return to the table, folks. For those of you who've been waiting for this show to uh, for us to for us to return to the uh, these westerns that were directed by William Castle, we're finally doing it. But we have a couple of surprises. Surprise one is, of course, that we're doing it. Uh, surprise two <laughs> is that neither of these movies are technically westerns, right? Which right? it shocked the crap out of me. Uh, I should have known at least one of them would have to not actually be a western. 
the other, uh, let's let's just say I'm shocked. Uh, the, the what we're talking about here is there uh, a few years ago a DVD set, a two DVD set was put out by Mill Creek called the William Castle Western Collection, uh, aka the fastest guns of the West eight film set, and uh, on it are all, all these movies directed by Castle, uh, technically starting in 1948, but almost all the well all the other films actually were he directed in a flurry of activity when he was a, a journeyman filmmaker kind of learning his craft at Columbia Pictures. If you were to look at his IMDb page, you would notice that uh, there are a couple of years, like 53, 54, and 55, where he was churning out damn near a film a month uh, or a film every seven or eight weeks. Uh, it was it was a ridiculous uh, amount of of time and energy spent turning out film after film after film for Columbia, but it's what allowed William Castle to hone his craft, to learn exactly how to get a film in the can as inexpensively as possible, to uh, learn the best ways to do certain things. Also, and a very important thing for when he struck out on his own at the end of the 50s, to be able to judge how long it would take to film certain things in certain ways so that you did not accidentally end up going over budget and spending way too much money. So what we've uh, finally done here is we're wrapping this up. We're doing one final episode to do the last two movies in this set. They are not westerns, but we're going to pretend that they are uh, before we delve into the details of them, where it becomes evident that they are not. But the two movies we're going to talk about are uh, Duel on the Mississippi and Uranium Boom. Now, anybody with any sense, would have known that a film called Uranium Boom could not be a classic period Western. Uh, It's it's obvious, it's obvious I should have, you know, should have been clear to both of us before we even thought about that. But hey, the people who put this set together said they were all Westerns, and we took them at their word. So to be honest, we've been lied to. (laughs) You know, you say they're not Westerns, and they don't have the Western... um trappings yeah but i do feel like there's kind of some western theme kind of played with a little bit oh yeah uh with uranium boom and and the other one as well i I think if you take away the cowboys and indians and the six shooters and all that other stuff you still get a little bit of that western storytelling in there a little bit but yeah it's not your traditional western at all um not that i mind it Oh, I don't mind it either. Uh, I, to be honest, the the type of movie that, um, to, to to one degree or another, the type of movie that Duel on the Mississippi is is actually a type of movie that I really do enjoy. Which is kind of a it's it's a I would call it a pre western. The period it's set in is kind of the eighteen twenties, eighteen thirties, which is uh, you know before before the the Wild West existed at all. And so what we're talking about here is a story in, set in uh, Louisiana dealing with the sugar plantation owners. And so this is a very, it has, you know, all the costuming is different. The, the whole concept of, uh, that, of that, that you're dealing with uh, for the setting and the look and, the, and the, all the period detail is all very different to a degree. But uh, the, the real joy for me is I kind of enjoy stories set in that time period. There aren't as many of, of course, you know, there aren't as many of them as there are Westerns. Duh. <laughs> there are only 700 trillion Westerns at last count. And still, you know, that, that number continues to increase with each passing hour, I think. But the, 
number of these types of films uh, there there are there are a few but they're not um, let, let's just say that the movies that take place in uh, America in the period before the Civil War are greatly outnumbered by the films that take place in the period after the Civil War and so uh, I'm gl- I'm glad that they include this in the set because it does kind of in, in some thematic ways it fits the Western mold I guess you'd say yeah yeah I I felt that most strongly with... Well, actually, no, I take it back. I, I do feel that with both of them. Yeah. It's it's not hard to see. Also, I got to yeah. say, the... the we'll, we'll get into the story here in a minute, but let's talk about, uh, my God, the casts in these movies. Let's, 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 let's deal with Duel of the Mississippi first, because Duel on the Mississippi is headlined by Lex Barker, who is someone who... I, I, he's, he's, he's someone that I got to know first because he played... Uh, uh, old Shatterhand in a number of German westerns made in the 1960s, and then learned that oh okay he also played Tarzan in the 1950s in a series of five movies. He was the guy who picked up uh, the Tarzan role right after Johnny Weissmuller became too old and fat to play. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Because before uh, right right after Johnny Weiss not not he did, just just after Johnny Weissmuller uh, decided he could not play the role anymore. How's that? I'll be nice. Uh, <laughs> Lex Barker, luckily, uh, remained a trim, thin man for the rest of his life. Sadly, though, he did die when he was 54 in the early 70s, but hey, that's a story for another day. So we got Lex Barker as the lead, and... He was also, uh, I just want to comment on him real quick, uh, the torture chamber of Dr. Sadism. Oh, yes, most assuredly. Uh, man, what a, it's, it's a film that I avoided for a long time because of the title. I just thought, well, that's not really the kind of movie that I'm going to be interested in, but I'm so glad that Troy Howarth actually pushed me to talk about that movie on Monster Kid Radio. It's a blast. And man, it's it's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. It's it's uh, that that ridiculous title. I'd never thought about that being the kind of title that would push some people away from it because it's I see a title that ridiculous and it just draws me in. It's like, okay, wait a minute. Just, you know, what are you bringing to the table if you're going to call your movie that? <laughs> so you, you, you really right? better put something pretty interesting on the table if you're if you're doing this. Uh, but uh, I've always enjoyed uh, Lex Barker. I, I've I've. Kind of, I, this summer I've been revisiting his Tarzan movies because I, I I knew out of the five there was at least one I hadn't seen but I I, I can't, so but I couldn't remember which one so I've just been like hell with it I'll just rewatch them all I don't care <laughs> I mean I really don't I seriously it's like Tarzan's Magic Fountain Tarzan and the Slave Girl Tarzan's Peril Tarzan's Savage Fury and Tarzan and the She Devil and it's like huh well I know I've seen no wait a minute is that the one with Ah, crap. Just watch them all the heck with it. But he was also, I mean, he, when, when you start talking about that period of time where in the late 50s in his, in his career here in the States kind of uh, started to peter out and he decided to go to Europe, man, he, he made some, I've mentioned, you know, the, the old Shatterhand character uh, in films like uh, Treasure, of Silver, Treasure of Silver Lake, which is just phenomenally good. But he was also in some really interesting crimmies like uh, uh, Executioner of Venice and Oh geez, I can't remember the titles. But he played Old Shatterhand next to the the Indian character Winnetou in uh, several movies like Last of the Renegades. He was also in some Euro spy stuff, The Blood Demon, which is an alternate title for Torture Chamber of Doctor Sadism. Yep. It's like you know, would the yep. Blood Demon have been a title that would have would have got you to see it? Faster? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, the title it just has this kind of exploitation kind of seventies grindhouse thing, which was never really my bag. Even when I got into classic uh-huh. horror and all that. I just 
you know, I don't, whatever. But <laughs> yeah, th- th- that movie is not that. So yeah, Blood Demon, I would have been all over. Uh-huh. Um, and I mean, you're talking about all these other movies he's done. I don't have a lot of experience with him outside of, you know, a handful of movies. I don't think I've seen any of the, uh, like the, the one or two movies or any of those. Oh, well, th- what's great is that, um, well, here's the, here's the horrible thing. The, the, those movies, those German uh, westerns in the, that were made in the 60s, that is one of the last holdout areas where it seems like English speakers like us have very limited resources to be able to see those things because I think only a couple of them were actually ever, ever dubbed into English and released in Britain and the States. The, uh, the first one I mentioned, um, Treasure of Silver Lake, uh, was dubbed into English and does occasionally, strangely enough, turn up on like uh, one of the cable Western channels. And, be, and part of that is because uh, Herbert Lom is also in it. And, and so there's so there's at least one other, you know, there's at least one other face besides Lex Barker who, you know, you know, film fans might actually recognize. Uh, but you know, if you if you've ever visited the Crimmy end of the pond, uh, that movie also has Karen Dorr and Eddie Arendt, who were regulars in the uh, the, Cr- the German Crimmy films, those those wonderful crime mm-hmm, movies. Mm-hmm. And so it's a real easy crossover for, for fans of that genre to start looking at those movies. But they're they, basically most of them, I believe, were just not dubbed into English. And so that's a that's a big area that I keep thinking that some enterprising video company over here in the States is going to realize they could, they could they could really make a lot of money if they were to get their hands on the rights to all those German-made Westerns of the 60s and get them over here. Uh, I've seen uh, prints online of some of them that look fantastic, but it's just slap, slap an English subtitle track on those things and watch your spaghetti Western lunatic fans out there finally have an ability to, to, to see these movies as well, which were being made just before and at the same time as some of those classic spaghetti Westerns. It's like, man, it's like, these, this, would, this would be amazing. I mean, and with titles like The Desperado Trail and and uh, The Valley of Death, I mean, they're exactly the kind of you know Westerns that would play perfectly. It's like, bring these things out on, on Blu-ray over here so that I can see them. I mean, so that you can sell them and make money. <laughs> Well, those titles, I mean, just they, they, I'm a huge Spaghetti Western fan. I I love Spaghetti Westerns, huge fan. But this is an area of that. And I guess technically they're not Spaghetti Westerns because they're from Germany or whatever. Mm. But that's kind of like a subset of that, that I've just not really explored. Sounds like I need to. Well, I mean, every one I've seen, (laughs) it's been, it's been fewer than, at at the most of German Westerns, I know I've seen about six or seven out of all the ones that they produced. And I've enjoyed every one of them. Uh, most of them have the feel of the uh, of having a budget behind them and of attempting to imitate the look and feel of late 50s, early 60s Hollywood Westerns. So that is how they look and feel. And so there's a, it's not the, the gritty, nasty, sweaty stuff that uh, you would get into by the end of the 60s. Uh, with Italian westerns, where the idea was, you know, to you know to not have your actors shave and to get the you know get them sunburned and and have them looking like they probably smell like a dead giraffe. It's not that. It's the the idea was actually much more along the lines <laughs> of of trying to imitate what was you know the 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 way westerns looked and felt at the end of the fifties and early sixties uh, coming out of Hollywood. And so that is a that is a certain type of movie. And I I wonder if 
there's, there's got to be a question of uh, being too expensive to bring those over here because, man, everybody knows old, old, old fat white guys especially, we buy these things. They're westerns. Just put them in front of us and, and the checkbook comes out. It's, it's, sad and, it's sad but true. So my, my um, Rod, you're <laughs> dead giraffe. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Very, very specific. Very specific. Uh, um, but now I want to see a Western where people are riding giraffes. I don't know why, <laughs> but that's just how my brain is working. Today. I won't lie and tell you that's a natural thought, but I understand it. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm, so, I'm sorry. It's just that uh, earlier today I saw an amusing meme that uh, posited the, the question that had never occurred to me before that, you know, giraffes probably don't even know what a fart smells like. I, I've seen that online, um, and I spend way too much time thinking about it. <laughs> well, I've already thought way too much about it, and I only saw it a few hours ago. It's taking up ah. too much time in my brain as we speak. But nevertheless, back to Lex Barker. Um, <laughs> I am a fan of the movies. He was, he was, even, he was even in one of the um, Dr. Mabusa films in the early 60s. I mean, he's one of those uh-huh. guys who, once you start going down his, his career... It's just uh, there. Let's just put it this way: uh, for fa- for fans of stuff that are like you and me, Derek, you're just gonna want to see the vast majority of it. Yeah, I you know I can't I can't listen to a podcast, let alone be on somebody else's podcast, without my two watch lists just growing <laughs> and growing. And I I know that I'm never gonna watch all the movies in my heck on my list in my collection. At this mm. point, before you know, I have to cash in, you know, whatever. I, I just, it's just so much to watch, you know. Yeah, but you got to try, Derek. You well, got to get. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's that's the goal, right? That's that's the journey. That's yeah. It's no, For it's sure. no longer he who dies with the most toys wins. It's he who dies having seen the most movies wins. So, <laughs> the most really odd, obscure, bizarre movies that most mainstream audiences don't even know exist wins. <laughs> Precisely. Now, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the the female lead of Duel on the Mississippi is uh, oh. Patricia Medina, oh. and to be honest, I loved her. This could this this whole podcast should could just be called the Patricia Medina double feature because she's in both movies this week. Uh huh. I was a little surprised by that. I didn't realize that. Uh, yeah, that that, that 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 had happened. Um, it, it was a it was a nice uh, happy accident. Yes, I guess. Um, and to kind of speak to the quality of what she was doing on screen for me, it took me a second to realize, yeah, it's the same person because I felt like she was playing two very distinct, different characters. Her acting to me was so good oh, I can put, that yeah. I was able to say, oh, 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 that, that is her. Yeah. Okay. So I really like that. And uh, my understanding is that she didn't really feel like she was appreciated for her acting uh, outside of being like the, the woman and just the damsel or the woman in distress or whatever. So, I mean, it's too bad because she's really good. Well, and she, especially in this movie, she's really, uh, not so much in uranium boom, but in this movie, she is the prime mover, man. I mean, she's, her character is what, Oh yeah. What, what forces the, the plot to go in directions that her character wants it to go. You're right. You're right. She's playing very different characters in these two movies. And, uh, I, I don't I, I I can't I can't figure it out she's got such red hair in this movie that there's a part of me that feels that that has to be fake she couldn't have been a real redhead they had to have, they had to have done that to her hair but at the same time I can't find out any I can't find out if she was actually a redhead or not but she looks incredibly natural as a redhead in Duel on the Mississippi 
And uh, you know, it's t- the, the color from. Is this a Technicolor film? I mean, it's a color film. It's so very colorful. Could that have, I don't know if it's Technicolor. Yeah. Whatever the process was, could that have added to the unnaturalness to you? You think? Oh well, I, I shouldn't say. Maybe unnatural is uh, too strong a word. It didn't. It, it, it didn't. <laughs> it didn't glow off the screen or anything. But it it did feel well, as yeah. if uh, even if she was a redhead, they were enhancing it because they want. You know, when especially in those early days of you know spending the money to make the film in color. You wanted to have a lot of color contrast within the image, and so you might amp that up. You might dye the hair a little bit more red than average. I did, it did look unnatural, I should say, but it did look as if uh, it could very easily not really be the shade she was born with. That makes sense. I mean, her character's name is Scarlet in the movie as well, yeah. so I mean, they could have. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, and the uh, Scarlet Lily, <laughs> which, which. Uh, or or is it or is it Lily Scarlet? Now I've completely I've completely lost my mind. I don't know if if that's uh, which one it is. I've I've completely flipped Lily Scarlet. That's what it is. Oh my goodness! I forgot what her last name was. I, forgot. <laughs> but to be honest, Scarlet Lily Scarlet would be a good definition of this woman. It's her, as you know, and, and her visual appearance. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but uh, I, there's a part of me also uranium boom although coming a year later, was shot in black and white. And in that, she appears to have very dark hair. And once again, at, uh, in, in that second movie we'll talk about, Uranium Boom, she seems to have dark hair as an intentional choice because there's another actress in the movie who has blonde hair. And it's that, you know, that thing where you're shooting in black and white and you wanna you wanna have a stark visual contrast between the two female leads. You know, it's like, okay, well there, you know, there's your there's how you do it, is you make sure that the hair color is distinctly different. Um, I was looking at her, I was looking at Patricia Medina's uh, long list of credits trying to figure out where I might have first seen her. And man, I have no idea because she was in so many different things. Uh, she was in uh, the premature burial episode of Thriller. She was in episodes of Have Gun Will Travel. She was uh, a char- she played a character in uh, the Walt Disney uh, series of Zorro stories. Uh, so I might have who knows might have seen her there. Might have seen her in Perry Mason. Might have seen her in the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. Might have seen her in Man from Uncle. Who the heck knows? Uh, Beast of Hollow Mountain, man. Oh, well, yeah. Now, see, Beast of Hollow Mountain, I, I didn't get to see until many years after when I might have ah, seen her in some of that okay. TV work. But, yeah, she's that, that, okay. that's a real standout because that's one. Well, let's, let's just say I have that on Blu-ray. So, that you know, that makes it, <laughs> makes it easy to point to that one. But uh, she was also in uh, Orson Welles' completely messed up and, and incredibly entertaining Mr. Arkirdian or Mr. Arkidden or Mr. Arkadin, which is something that I love to do because in the movie itself, they never settle on how to pronounce the character's name and they make a joke out of it as the movie goes on. And it's like, <laughs> so, so I know I saw her in that. And I also know I've seen her in the 1954, uh, 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 you know, sword and, sword and armor film, The Black Knight. But uh, I think maybe the first movie I may have seen her in is the the 1954 movie The Phantom of the Rue Morgue with Carl Malden. It's kind of this weird adaptation of Murders in the Rue Morgue. And uh, I'm one of the few people on the planet who seems to think it's worth watching more than once. I don't know. 
Really? Because I haven't talked about it on Monster Kid Radio yet. You want to do it? Oh, I I, I do enjoy that film. I I All haven't right. I haven't rewatched it in years, but it's it's one that I think has has uh, more than enough in it to to talk about pleasantly without uh, getting bogged down <laughs> in the fact that it's 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 not uh, other adaptations of the story that you may like more. So yeah, I, I haven't seen it before, so I'd be happy to watch it for the first time and have you on. So listeners, hold uh, hold us to that. I'm going to have Rod on to talk about that, <laughs> as well as those other two Margariti sci-fi films. But that's totally something different. Yeah, that's totally something different. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Patricia Medina, she does play very different characters in these two movies, and I think that uh, she's just one of those actresses that I have to admit that I've I've obviously seen her in a number of things, never took any real strong note of her, and watching these two movies back to back point out very clearly that I should have. I'm in the same boat. Uh, I was a huge fan of what I saw her do. Uh, just just the performance there, the presence that she has, the way that she uh, kind of just just not just the way she speaks, but the way she changes her voice, her her cadence, the way she presents herself, even the way she moves or walks around is yes, really different between the two films. And, you know, I'm looking at her filmography as well, and she's been in a few things that I have seen and I just never really paid attention. And I feel like I need to go back and revisit things like the magic carpet with, uh, you know, Lucille Ball and John Agar. She's in that. She did an Abbott and Costello film. She did a three stooges thing. There's a lot of things that I'm sure I've seen her in and have just never really connected with. I need to go back and pay more attention because I adored her in this film. She's very good. There's a, yeah, there's a, I, I enjoy all the actors in this movie uh, to, to a degree. I knew most of them. And, and it, people, if you've, if you've spent any time watching older movies, you're going to know most of the cast of this movie on site. You're going to know who Warren Stevens is. You're going to know who John Diener is. You're going to know who Craig Stevens is. There are so many, let's just say it, familiar faces in this movie that you've seen in half a dozen other things that it's it's kind of crazy. Uh, John Diener is one of those character actors who has been in, I don't know, 300,000 episodes of television. It's completely nuts. Every Everything that you can think of from roughly the early 60s forward, he was a guest star on, including things like Hogan's Heroes, uh, Wild Wild West, and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, just to tag a couple of things that people listening to us are going to be intrigued by immediately. But he's just... He's got the look of a character actor, right? Yeah. He, he looks like somebody who would get a lot of work by just kind of showing him and saying, hey, I'm free this week. What do you got? You know? It, well, and he, pl- he plays Lex Barker's character's uh, kind of older father. And mm-hmm. uh, he, he's, got that, he's got that voice that deep voice that allows you to think that, oh yeah, this is definitely a guy who's a patriarch of a, of a family that owns a a plantation. Yeah. This is definitely a guy with the gravitas to be that guy, you know, but he was in so many movies and TV shows. There's absolutely no way if you've spent any time whatsoever watching movies in your life that you have not seen this guy. Even if you just watch television, just a, (laughs) just a couple of weeks ago, I finally watched a movie from 1955 called The King's Thief, which stars uh, Edmund Purdom and Anne Blythe and David Niven and a very young Roger Moore. And damn if he isn't in that movie. He's he's everywhere. He's like one of those. He is literally one of those that guys where once you see his face, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen him in half a hundred things. And of course, so Warren Stevens is the same way playing uh, Hugo Murat. 
the bad guy. He's a really good bad guy in this. Oh yeah. Oh, he's great. I was scared of him. I was scared of him. He's nasty. He's yeah. nasty, nasty, nasty. And of course, people guess guess what? You've seen Warren Stevens in Forbidden Planet. If you know nothing else, you've seen him in Forbidden Planet. I guarantee it. Uh, he plus hey. He was uh, he was in an episode of the original Star Trek, so there's just no way to avoid uh, the fact that uh, you know his face. Sure, come on, people, you you've watched Star Trek, surely. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> what can that be? I have no idea. I, I don't. <laughs> but I mean, you know, he's just another one of those character actors who, like I say, yeah. as soon as you see his face, you're gonna go, oh yeah, 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 I know that guy. Uh, it's, 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 it's crazy. The, the, there's a small role by Mel Wells. He plays the sheriff of this, of, uh, of this, uh, New Orleans parish that they're in. And Mel's, Mel Wells is this kind of heavyset guy that you'll, as soon as you see him, you're like, oh, okay, I've seen him in a few dozen things. It's, it goes on and on. And, uh, what's cool is I, I could watch a movie like this and just watch it for the familiar faces who are really good at delivering dialogue and getting across a story, no matter what the script is. But I also have to admit that I kind of enjoyed this story, and it doesn't hurt, and I know that you'll agree with this, but this movie is roughly 72 minutes long. These are, yeah, they're kind of like get in and get out, move on. Uh, you know, this they have kind of like that B-movie feel, which I'm sure there was the B-movie unit or whatever unit it was at Columbia Pictures he was doing these for. The- Very... Um, perfunctory type movies let's make a movie so we can fill some space fill some time yep make a few bucks at the theater by renting out and having him play it three or four times and we're good i I kept thinking about what the audience was for these movies when i was watching both of them like how how do they market these what these these were so short and so compact but they deliver so much so I, i wonder how they were received i believe and this is just from what I've been able to read. These were, you know, the, these were uh, generally promoted as adventure films, as action movies. The the kind of thing where, uh, if you take a look at the trailer, you can see they're setting up the multiple uh, the multiple competitive relationships between the characters, and then uh, pointing out that uh, people start using swords on each other, and there's gunplay, and there's a lot of action. And like I say. This is a, I, you can't call this a programmer. They spent money on this, but the, the script is so compact and so tight that it's, there's no, there, you know, there's no fat in the story. There's no, there's not a single scene in this movie to the best of my memory. I've watched it twice now. I, I don't think that you would be wise to extract a single scene from this. And I suspect that that was, you know, the, the way they constructed it, the way they even filmed it, and sh- you know, and put it together was the idea that, we this got this has to be tight. It has to be quick. It has to be uh, the kind of thing that has very little lag. The slowest moment of the film is actually slow because there it, it's a it's a fun scene to watch because Lex Barker's character is being humiliated by Patricia Medina's, <laughs> and, and yeah. that's the reason it's slower than the pace of the rest of the film because they're concentrating on what she's doing to make him look like a fool, and that is you know that's. That's the slowest portion of the film, and you're laughing. So good, good, good choice. Good, good, smart way to construct your story. Uh, and I did just double check while we were speaking here. It was in Technicolor. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's beautiful to look at. Even oh, even it's on this gorgeous. Desk. Yeah. It, it's probably. I'm going to go as far as saying it's one of the most beautiful pictures that Castle put together. Because I mean, I love Castle stuff. Don't get me wrong, but 
just the color is so vibrant and pops off the screen. It's just gorgeous. Well, in this case, I mean, it, it's not it's not 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 a surprise that that the money would have been spent because it wasn't Castle's money. <laughs> so he would be good point. Good he, point. He'd be he'd be using the resources of Columbia Pictures, and so it wouldn't be a thing where he he'd think, you know, I could save two thousand dollars by not having it processed as Technicolor and just use the color the color uh, film stock and <laughs> process yeah. it in the cheaper way. You know. Yep. Uh, not that I'm saying he's cheap. I'm just saying that he learned how to cut corners because of his producer, Sam Katzman, the man who was mm-hmm. his producer for so many years there at uh, there at Columbia. Uh, Katzman was famously frugal. And if you could find a way to make a movie uh, and bring it in just a, you know, just ten dollars cheaper, you know, you were going to get a pat on the back. So <laughs> that was <laughs> uh, let's let's tell people really briefly what the story is about. It is. Uh, it's set in uh, uh, 1820. It's uh, basically it's got uh, New Orleans as a backdrop. It's in, it's there in, New, in Louisiana. Lex Barker is the son of a land baron, played by John Diener. They're uh, about to bring that year's sugarcane crop to market, which is the uh, which is the, uh, the the big thing for them as plantation owners at this time of year because it's when they you know, it's essentially when they make all of their money to a large degree anytime that they are able to harvest the sugarcane. Uh, but right at the beginning of the movie, uh, some river pirates intervene and uh, steal their entire harvest. And part of that harvest, harvest uh, or part of the uh, pirates uh, taking the harvest are, are led by uh, Patricia Medina's character, Lily Scarlet. She really shouldn't be there, and everybody, all, all those pirates are telling, what are you doing? You don't need to be here. She wants to watch. She's definitely got a bone to pick with this family, which is why she's uh, kind of being part of the instigation for this theft. Uh, well, she is captured by Lex Barker's character uh, as the uh, pirates are attempting to make their getaway, but then she's able to slam Lex Barker's character in the head with a rock and get away as well. This sets up a wonderful dynamic in the story where Barker's character is well aware that she's involved with the thieves, that she is in some way connected with them and probably having something to do along with her father with leading them. But he has no proof. He, he has no way to, uh, to bring this in front of a magistrate or the sheriff or anyone, and so he is in a bad position. And, it, and to be honest, uh, his character's position just gets worse as the movie progresses, uh, because uh, Lily Scarlet and her father end up buying up the debt that uh, the the patriarch of this plantation family have, and then demanding it. Instead of doing what the banker would have done and just kind of let them float until they can actually pay this stuff off, uh, she calls it in, and we end up in this amazing sequence of events, which, uh, believe it or not, actually does have... Uh, precedent, uh, quite a lot of precedent actually, where her uh, where the, her idea in court is to make Lex Barker's character her indentured servant for ten years, and she will not send his father to prison. <laughs> Which seems like, you know, every time I think that the American judicial system hasn't advanced in a hundred years, you know, maybe it has. Uh, <laughs> Maybe it has, well, it's, because well, we, we can't be sold into indentured <laughs> servitude any longer. I don't know that prison would be any better, but holy crap. Well, I, I would assume it's a little better because they talk about how uh, 
prison is going to be terrible because it's it's moldy, it's rat infested, uh, and it, it's a ten year pr- sen- uh, prison sentence that the father's looking at, and uh, the son agrees to do three years in indentured servitude instead yeah, to keep yeah, his yeah. father, who's already sick, from going into the prison. And we do see what the prison looks like later. And yeah, it's it's basically a cave <laughs> with, with bars on the front. So yeah, maybe, maybe it's a dance just a little bit. <laughs> Good lord. Well, uh, of course, this uh, sets up the thing that any uh, savvy moviegoer knows will happen, which is, of course, that uh, Barker and Medina's characters are eventually going to, uh, they're, they're going to end up at least in some kind of love. Uh, we'll, we'll just see how the movie takes us there. But complicating things, of course, is the fact that um, Wallace Stevens, or I'm sorry, Warren Stevens' character, the nasty bad guy, is also interested in Lily Scarlet. And this sets up a, uh, a wonderful confrontation. I do love that Lex Barker's character is a smart character. We have a guy here who, is, okay, once this whole situation is put in front of him and he's, he's realizing that he, and he's more than willing to go into indentured servitude to save his father from having to go to prison, but then he also immediately realizes that by using that indentured servitude, he can, he can wipe the books all he has to do really is sacrifice himself even further. So he's able to, uh, as soon as he ascertains right there in the in the court in the courtroom from the judge, okay, so this this indentured servitude to her has started right now, right? So anything that happens to me now, uh, if if I if I were to die during those three years, well then that would still clean the books, right? So if I die then the debt is wiped away because I am officially in her service now, correct? And then he, the judge says, yes. So he immediately turns and uh, confronts the, the, Warrens, the Warren uh, Stevens character, uh, who is uh, a renowned dueler, a renowned uh, uh, pistol dueler and swordsman, and challenges him to a duel the next morning by insulting him, and uh, then essentially y- you realize very quickly what he's thinking, which is very obvious and brilliant, which is, hey, either I kill this scumbag asshole who I want to see dead anyway, or I get killed and then my father my father and my mother no longer have any debts. <laughs> and so this is, uh, it, sounds, it sounds darker than it plays, but it's just so clever. I love it because like, okay, so let's make sure these are the rules. Okay, good. Within those rules, I now have found the perfect way to fix this problem one way or the other. Either I get to kill the scumbag, and I feel pretty good about that, or all my par- all my parents' debts are paid and everything is back to zero for them, and I am I am the best the best son whatever done been. <laughs> He's rules lawyering himself out of the situ everybody out of the situation. You know, he he kills Hugo, who is the guy who's kind of running the sugar theft thing anyway. You know, or, or he dies and his parents are. Yeah, it's perfect. It's a great setup, and that's one of the things I love about this movie, Rod, is that he is so smart. As is Lily. Just to see the two of them kind of working against each other and eventually working together. I just, I love just that they're all super intelligent characters and not just people that Castle's moving around on set to say, okay, you say this part to tell this part of the story. Okay, now you do here. Yeah, they're not yeah. talking props. They're actually intelligent people that are are scheming, but smiling about it and just having a, I loved it. It's a blast. It's so, it's so much fun. Plus 
the uh, the action scenes in it, including the two separate duel sequences that are in the movie, oh, are really so exciting, and I like the way they're staged. Uh, rarely could I tell when a stunt double was being used, uh, although there are a couple of instances where it, it, there's definitely a stunt double because you're not going to let your actors do some of the stuff that happens in these in these fights. Oh, sure, uh, sure. But the uh, uh, the action scenes are, are are good. The movie's well paced. Um, I just I, I really enjoyed this. I enjoyed this well more than I thought I would. And uh, the thing is, I'm 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 a bit of a sucker for stories in this set in this period. Like I say, the early 1800s in uh, in uh, the United States. You know, it's one of those things. I I love that period of American history in the first place because remember, it's the first it's the first 50 or 60 years of the country being an actual country. And it's it's interesting if you read the history of that time period, not necessarily even just in uh, Louisiana or New Orleans specifically. But remember, this was, uh, this was a big experiment governmentally. Uh, and it was one of those things where, uh, where they're still feeling things out. It's a really... It, it eventually becomes the you know the the, the southwestern uh, part, portion of the country. That whole wildness of it does become what the old you know what we think of when we think of the old west. But that attitude and that feel is is still there in the earlier part of the century as well. But maybe even a little stronger because it's such a, it's such a young country. It's still seen as an experiment. It's still seen as something that has never really fully been tried before. And the few times that it has tried is always deteriorated into something where, you know, Kings came back into Kings and royalty finally came back into play one way or the other. And so you, with this story focusing on what is essentially aristocracy, remember this, these plantation families they are the well-to-do people. They're the ones with the the huge houses and a lot of wealth. And uh, to be able to, you, you can almost feel the the overwhelming joy uh, bubbling off the screen as Patricia Medina's character Lily is really enjoying putting the screws to these rich people because uh, they wouldn't, you know, they, they 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 made moves to make sure that her father, who is someone who started out poor and now has some wealth, they kept him from being able to buy uh, a home in this plantation area to keep him from becoming a plantation owner as well. And that's that's what that's the engine that's driving her at the beginning of the story is just vengeance on these people for uh, looking down their nose, looking down their noses at her family, at her father especially, and so. There's, uh, you know, the movie doesn't do a lot with it because it's much more interested in the personal aspect of the story. But there's that, there's that class divide. There's that struggle between uh, the rich and the poor, and the anger as the the rich people uh, use their influence and their power to do things that really aren't fair and are kind of nasty. And then uh, you also get into there. There are two things I I I, ha- I have to bring up. First of all, one of them one of them fun, one of them not fun. <laughs> The not fun one I'll start with. Um, it's 1820 in Louisiana. We're on a sugarcane plantation. We are dealing with wealthy people who run such plantations, who refer repeatedly to their overseers, and there is nary a mention of slavery. Um Boy, do they go out of their way to make sure that we're not going to think about how all that sugar cane got harvested. 
that whole end of things is kept well off screen, and that is not done by accident. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> there, there's a few uh, elements like that throughout the film where you don't see the slaves that were responsible for that, or if you do see any African-Americans later, they're all in very subservient roles. A couple of times grinning about it like they're happy to be there. It's, <laughs> it's a little uncomfortable at points. Well, it's it. What they do their best to keep that yeah. out of the yeah. story, to keep that away from the narrative as much as they can. Um, but and and, what, and I, I can easily imagine anybody not really thinking too deeply, just kind of watching this to be an adventure story, a fast adventure tale, uh, with you know, you know, lots of set pieces and some interesting uh, personal inner, you know basically kind of getting wrapped up in the, the the story that's playing out, not even ever really thinking about that. Because, well, I mean, we don't, you know, we're never going to see the, the fields where this is being done. Of course not. But at the same time, as soon as you say New Orleans Plantation, 1820, it shouldn't take more than one or two thoughts before you go, yeah, we're, we're in the slave era here. <laughs> this is, yeah. That's what's what going on here. And of course, uh, you know, if you go down, if you go down that road, it it, it does uh, it would it would substantially alter the feel of the story if that became a part of it. And I completely understand why that wouldn't be a part of it, either because the people making this movie wouldn't think to make that a part of it, or even think that it would be worth mentioning or commenting on in any way, shape, or form. I mean, we're talking the middle fifties for God's sake. But at the same time, it's uh, also the kind of thing that you would consciously stay away from if you thought about it, if you're trying to maintain the tone and focus of a story like this. The other thing that is more fun than thinking about the fact that, boy, we got to stay away from that subject, huh, don't we, boys, is uh, something that it wasn't until I thought about the movie after my first viewing that I realized that a certain thing might, <laughs> might have been put there for a specific reason. Okay, at the beginning of the movie, they talk about uh, harvesting the sugar cane and about how some plant, you know, some of these planters are having, uh, have been having for the past few years, been having a trouble with a disease called red rot. Yeah, I noticed that. You're right. Okay. And, they, and it eventually gets dropped, but you're right. Yeah. Well, I, I looked it up. Red rot is a real disease that primarily uh, will destroy uh, or severely limit your ability. It'll either destroy sugarcane or it will uh, distinctly limit your ability to actually grow sugarcane effectively. Uh, it's a real thing. They still have, there, there are still outbreaks of it occasionally in, uh, in Asia and different places like that. So it's a real thing. But what immediately popped to mind is I, I was looking it up and going, if it's not real, if that's not a real thing, then this is uh, the screenwriter's... <laughs> commenting on having to watch out for the destructive communist threat. Oh, no. <laughs> because it's, oh, the wow. mid, it's the mid-50s, right? And Good so, point. The second time I went through the film, I was listening to uh, the dialogue when they would talk about Red Rot, and what's amazing is that it would be possible to just listen to them talking about that disease the brief few times they mention it, and think that that was there because that's what they were commenting about. But it, I don't think it's actually there. I don't think that that's really it because red rot is a real thing. But the fact that my brain immediately ran down that road 
Wow. No, that, that makes that makes sense. And it is that era of Hollywood, right? That yeah. If you don't make sure that it's clear to everybody that you are not sympathizing with the with the Reds, uh-huh. you're on a list somewhere. So, yeah, it makes perfect sense. See, for me, I just kept thinking Red Rot, Red Rot. Well, Red, Scarlet, Red, Scarlet. I get it. Okay, cool. Kind of a clever way to kind of talk. But, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's str- It's. It's strange, isn't it? It's one of those things where, but the thing is, I have become over the past, I guess, decade, decade and a half, I've become really sensitive. After I did a, a fair amount of research into uh, uh, into the the kinds of things that uh, screenwriters were getting called out for by by HUAC, by the House on American Activities Committee, things that they were being called out for in their scripts, and realizing, oh, I just never even thought to look for that kind of stuff. Now, anytime I'm watching a movie made in this, the the fifties. It's one of the first things that just pops into my mind is, oh, 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 is there some kind of coded something here where the people making the film are either, uh, you know, making it, making it making it clear on which side of the of the divide they stand or not? You know, it's just a, it's a it's something that creeps in and it's just uh, like like I say, red rot just stuck in my mind and I was like, is that what? But you know, like I say, I, I yeah, it makes sense though. I mean, it's, are they overcompensating? No, how can you not <laughs> accept uh, expect that though? Knowing how Hollywood was and and like I said, Hugh and all that, how can you not yep. <laughs> look at it and think, oh, that's a yeah. So yeah, I totally get it. <sighs> but nevertheless, uh, that uh, that does not play into. The way the story plays out, this is uh, this is a, a fun little adventure film that uh, ends pretty darned effectively with a nice action, a nice couple of action scenes. I would actually have to admit, there's a there's a larger scale fight that's actually well staged, and then a second duel between uh, <laughs> between Lex Barker Lex Barker's character and uh, uh, Warren Stevens's character. That is that is a blast. It's 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 a lot of fun. It's uh it's seventy two minutes that uh, will entertain you pretty darned effectively. I have to admit. You mentioned the guy that was in Star Trek. I got to mention somebody else who was in Star Trek. Oh, who? The mother of Tulane is Tapau from oh. a mock time. Is she? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Right and and. The way she kind of moves through her scenes, and she doesn't have a lot to do in the film. She's only in a couple of scenes. Yeah. But she's got this kind of regal, aristocratic kind of presence. And I just, I fell in love with her. I want to, I want her to be my grandmother. You know, it's just like, wow, she is so proper and perfect and knows exactly the right thing to say. And it's Tapau. <laughs> she is. Oh my goodness! The actress's name is uh, Celia Lavosky. Um, oh my goodness, you are correct, sir. Um, yeah, she's she's the older actress who plays Lex Barker's character's mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, she did a another one of these actors who did a lot of television work in the '60s, Dragnet, and, uh, Star Trek, obviously, The Flying Nun, Big Valley, everything under the sun. Very you're, long. You're career. right. I totally, I totally missed that Star Trek connection. I should, I should have, I should have uh, Spock poke me in the eye with his, with his, uh, his split open fingers. I should. <laughs> oh, well, crazy. and in her very first film role, she played a character named Proline, and I'm going to say Cook because she spells it the way I spell it. 
But, you know, I'm just going to say, you know, Fraulein Cook, K-O-C-H. Uh, I doubt that's how she pronounces it in the film, but if she does, she pronounces it. If she doesn't, she pronounces it wrong. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, she's she's fantastic. Uh, and uh, we just talked about Amok Time during one of our Star Trek talks with Jeff Polier and I do on Tuesday nights on Twitch. And, yeah, she's just been forefront of my mind lately. So that's to see her pop up in this, was that's cool. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like I say. I mean, I've seen her in a few things other than this movie, but uh, I did not realize that she was T'Pol on Star Trek. That's kind of stunning. She was married to Peter Lorre, really. She was. Wow. There was someone married to Peter Lorre. Are they insane? That's that's wow. <laughs> okay then. <laughs> oh my god! All right. I, I guess good for her. I guess yeah. That, is that where good for go Peter? That? Yeah, good for Peter. Yeah, good for Peter. That's the way to go there. <laughs> well, I mean, our our uh, Patricia Medina was married to Joseph Cotton, so I mean, you know, lots of really cool connections there. But anyway, yeah, I thought it was interesting to Moving I thought it was on. interesting to learn that you know Miss Medina was married to Joseph Cotton for <laughs> for like thirty years. Yeah, right. Wow, that's crazy. Okay, cool. Anyway. Our second feature, Uranium Boom from 1956. Uh, interesting cast here. We've already talked a good bit about Patricia Medina. She is the uh, the female lead, or I should say that she's the female character with the most screen time. But this movie is kind of a guy's movie. Uh, two actors who kind of butt heads at the beginning, become friends, and then butt head until the end of the movie. Played by uh, Dennis Morgan and... William Tallman. Both of these are guys that you've probably seen in a lot of other things, uh, especially William Tallman. I have to say this. This is I'm I'm trying to be nice when I say this. William Tallman has a has a has a face uh, that uh, looks like an unmade bed. It looks as if uh, <laughs> it's it's uh, it needs to be. You, you, your immediate thought is somebody get an iron and get those wrinkles out of that man's face. Uh, the thing is uh, that is not a. That, I'm not trying to be mean spirited. He's really good, but that face gives him a distinctive, memorable. You're you're never gonna you're never gonna suspect he's somebody else. And the thing is, if you've ever watched an episode of the Perry Mason Show from the fifties and sixties, you have seen him because he's in every episode. I think, uh, well, or or like two hundred and twenty-five or thirty of them. How many were? How many did they make? He was in almost all of them. All, all of them. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, uh, oh, well, to be honest, apparently he wasn't in all of them. He was fired from Perry Mason for a short period in 1960s uh, because uh, he got busted for uh, <sighs> marijuana. There was a suspicion of marijuana use, and the, the, the police reported finding Tallman and seven other defendants either nude or semi-nude. And they were arrested for possession of marijuana. Charge was later dropped. And uh, (laughs) the show dropped him for just a little while. 
and uh, then he was reinstated. Um, this is this is good. There was a massive, apparently a massive letter writing campaign by viewers to get him back on the show, uh, which is which is good. It just it just reminds me of. Uh, this period of Hollywood where you'd even have people like uh, Robert Mitchum getting arrested for marijuana possession and uh, that possibly being the end of their career because it had happened to other people as well. But there were some people that survived and apparently Mr. Tallman is one of those people who survived. Thank goodness, because he should be able to smoke pot and get laid. Leave the man alone. <laughs> <laughs> Never sure. <laughs> leave that, leave that poor guy alone. Anyway, I mean, look at his face. Come on, he, no. look at his face. He's fine. <laughs> well, he plays. He plays. Uh, he plays Grady Matthews, who uh, is a guy who, uh, along with a lot of other people, come to uh, Colorado as part of the. Say it with me, people. Uranium boom. Uh, this is a period of time in the fifties where. Uh, the burgeoning, uh, shall we shall we say, nuclear uh, industry. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Nuclear industry. Yeah, yeah. was uh, in need of uranium because that was one of the uh, driving elements of things that allowed them to uh, do whatever it was they needed to do, from building plants to uh, constructing things, even down to the the luminous dials on people's watches. This uranium was a was a, a useful thing, and you could make a lot of money if you could find and mine a fairly large amount of it. Now, it's not hard to see that in a movie like this, what uranium has done has supplanted the idea of the gold rush. We've got a, a kind of a uranium rush here in areas where uranium has been found by other prospect, uh, prospectors uh, slash miners slash uh, get-rich-quick artists. And so what you have here is uh, something playing out that is a lot like the classic California rush westerns that you would see dozens and dozens of, of course, across the decades. And this is, even though it takes place in the middle 1950s, this really does kind of have a similar structure to a lot of westerns that you could point to. Only uh, there's no gunplay. <laughs> All of the yeah, and that's what I was that's what I was getting at earlier when I was saying that this one kind of felt westerny without the cowboy hats and all yeah, that. Yeah, there's no uh, there's no uh, although there are there's a fair amount of fisticuffs. There's no gun violence. This is all the vi- kind of violence that's being done in a very different way and in a in a pretty interesting way to modernize a story like this, the real violence is being done financially to people. There's a little bit of gun I, I don't want to say gun oh, play yeah, because yeah. they're not really I mean they, they're used to threaten each other, but that's yeah. about it. Nobody's there's no showdowns, there's no gunfights. They're just kind of there as props. You don't really see them being used, but which is nice. But you're right. Yeah, the most the most vindictive violent stuff that happens is financial ruin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is another movie that um, it's under seventy minutes long. I mean, it's a little over. It's just a little over an hour long. So this thing is an, it's another movie where uh, although it's a little, I would say that there are a few drier spots in this movie than there were in Duel on the Mississippi. This is still another movie that is barreling toward <laughs> its conclusion pretty much all the time. The uh, it's it's shot in black and white. It's uh, it's widescreen shot in black and white, and uh, essentially is uh, it's pr- it's pretty darn well constructed 
what 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 happens is you have a uh, Grady played by Will, William Tallman coming into this Colorado town, meeting up with Brad played by Dennis Morgan. Now Dennis Morgan is another guy who's come to this town pretty much the same day to uh, do his do, you know see try his luck, try prospecting, see if he can find uh, uranium for himself along with all the other people who are running around making this backwater mountain town. Uh, completely unsustainable for anybody who isn't rich because everything costs tons of money. There is no real room in any of the hotels. And as a matter of fact, the way these two guys meet each other is they get into a fist fight to settle who it will be that actually gets the only room that is available in the local hotel. So uh, they start off contentious. Uh, after the fist fight, they kind of they kind of realize, okay, we're being idiots. And the guy who's vacating the room is highly entertained by the fact that they were willing to fight about this, and uh, says, you know, you probably could both take that room, and <laughs> it wouldn't be that big a deal. And they do. They become friends. They become partners, looking for what they're trying to find, the uranium. And that is uh, how things get off to kind of a fun start. You have uh, two guys who could have been enemies but become friends and then actually become business partners. I love the way they come together. And I love when Brad says to Grady, I'd hate to mess up your clothes, but <laughs> <laughs> right when they're about to start fist fighting over the, over the yes. room, let's settle this like gentlemen. I guess that means we're going to beat each other up. Okay, cool. Let's do it. <laughs> well, so they, they get out there. They, they run oh. across. I thought this was hilarious. They run across a native American who uh, is holding a sign saying that he can, you know, that he's more than willing to, to guide people out into these, out into these uh, hills and mountains to uh, look for uh, uranium and that he, he guarantees them, hey, I can definitely I can definitely lead you to it. And of course, this smells like a con from Jump Street. But bizarrely enough, it isn't. It's not a con. It's 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 crazy. Navajo Charlie actually isn't lying. Uh, <laughs> he definitely knows where the yellow rock is. Yeah, um, yeah it felt so scammy. Like how? <laughs> and if this guy really knew where it was, how is it that everybody else passed him up and he hadn't tried to connect with it? Why didn't he get himself? So, just so many questions. <laughs> but it's not a con. It's it's legit. He knows where it's at. And as long as he gets taken care of, he doesn't even want to cut. Just like you take care of yeah, Charlie. Just, All right, yeah. cool. He, he doesn't even he doesn't he doesn't want to sign his name to to any of the paperwork or anything like that. It's just like you guys pay me, keep me you know keep me comfortable, and we're good. And uh, I should point out that this is of course another instance. Uh, we're in the 1950s here, folks. So yes, this Native yeah. American character is uh, as you would expect for a Native American character, uh, played by a Dutch American actor. Uh, he's not uh, he's not Native American. It's an actor who you probably notice if you've watched a lot of movies. His name's Philip Van Zant. He did a lot of movies over the years. Uh, he even, you can even go all the way back to uh, 1944, and he was Inspector Muller in House of Frankenstein. So yeah, yeah, yeah. He's uh, he was He was he, he had a small bit in Invisible Agent where he was uncredited. He was in a couple of Tarzan movies. He's a face that you might recognize, but here he's playing a Native American. You got to roll with some things, folks. It was a different time. Yeah. That's just the way it is. He's, but the only thing that's Native American about him is that they really, they give him a couple of braids. They darken his skin a little bit. And unfortunately, they have him speaking in near broken English, not quite. Yeah. And the and the sign where he's like, I'll help you find uranium that he's holding up at the road. Uh, like a couple of the letters are written backwards like a child wrote it. <laughs> it it's really, it, it, it's uh. it's insulting. But it's the 50s, and that's what Hollywood did. 
all the time for better or especially for worse yeah it's just one of those things um what i do appreciate though is that the two men the two white guys don't talk down to him yeah or or treat him as anything other than human i mean they do expect him to serve the coffee when they could have just gotten up and gotten it themselves but you know for the most part they want to cut him in on the action they want to take care of him they want him to be part of the team so i do appreciate that yeah the movie does not the character neither the characters or the film insult this character which uh to be honest i was kind of i was kind of like <laughs> clenching my fist going oh they're going to do it eventually but they they I know. never yeah, me too. I was I was I was surprised <laughs> so yeah well, they go off into the hills, start looking, and quickly uh, realize that there's a problem and that there's a, a trio of other other guys who are out there looking around who challenge them and warn them off a certain a certain hillside that they have been that they're tr- essentially claiming for their own. They wave guns in their faces, and so they leave and they go somewhere else. And as time goes by, and they keep looking around the area over the over the next several weeks. You realize that these three ne'er-do-well scumbags are still hanging around. And uh, you know that's eventually going to turn into a problem. And it does. Because once they actually finally listen to Navajo Charlie, and they go to the area, which is pretty far off, that uh, he has insisted that he is sure will have the yellow rock, the uranium stuff. They go there, and they're being followed by those three guys. But one of the reasons that the movie builds into itself about how there there's a way that nobody would a have paid attention to Charlie before now, and that even if he led them out there, they would have thought he was crazy as well because uh, there've been rock slides over the past few years since Charlie was last here, and so there's no yellow rock in evidence until they start blasting into that hillside. Then they find it. Then they find the uranium. Well. Once they found the uranium, then our uh, trio of bad guys show up, and uh, things get out of th- things get out of hand and come to a head to one degree. Is that part of the story? Now, this is where, over the course of this period of time, while they're doing all this hunting, we find out that Grady William Tallman's character is doing all this. He's trying to make he's trying to make his fortune because he's convinced that there's this woman that he's in love with who, if he's able to to be wealthy and kind of provide uh, a certain amount of stability and and uh, comfort, then this woman that he's interested in will actually uh, agree to marry him. Well, once they've discovered they're, uh, they're going to be rich, they've, they've discovered this uranium area, Brad, the Dennis Morgan character, is sent off while uh, Grady sticks sticks around to, to guard their claim. Brad and Charlie drive into town to uh, do the legal paperwork that will allow them to lay claim to this area and therefore be rich. Well, huh, this is where Patricia Medina enters the character, enters the story and her character is the, the, the lady who, uh, who the character's name is Jean Williams and Jean has come to town essentially to talk to Grady and explain to him that, you know, I, I know that you think that, it's possible that we could be together and you've got this idea, but she's come to town to disabuse him of this belief and to kind of, kind of, I guess you would say kind of let him down easy. And mm-hmm. you think about it, this, she's really gone out of her way. She came all the way out here to do this, to have this conversation with him so that he wouldn't continue to carry a torch for this lady or to consider her as some kind of goal for him to reach. Well, 
Since he's not there, she ends up leaving a note for him at the hotel, and then, as chance would have it, and or script writing would have it, uh, she actually runs into Dennis Morgan's character, Brad, as he has uh, as he's about to uh, uh, finish up the paperwork that would involve that would get him and his partner this uranium strike. Uh, well, she is charmed by Brad, and, and Dennis Morgan's a pretty charming guy. It's not hard to believe. They go out to dinner that night, strike up a relationship almost immediately, even though I have to say, the one of the problems you run into in a film like this when a relationship, is, a relationship of this type is supposed to start as quickly as it does here is that usually the movie can't manage to make it believable, but I have to say that the back and forth between them and her reluctance to get involved with him actually rang pretty pretty true to, to, to life. This is not the kind of situation where, uh, although the, the plot mechanics mean that these two have got to get together so that we can get to the next plot point, it felt more believable than I expected it to, especially in a film this short. Uh, I don't know if that's how you felt or not, but I, 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 actually, I actually bought all of the conversation between the two of them as she, she's really reluctant at the beginning, and then eventually they kind of do come together. I, I did feel that way as well, and I appreciated that it wasn't just a, you know, she swooned over him, that sort of thing, and, and that was that. What I really appreciated is that she came across as a strong woman capable of making her own choices. There's a moment where he's starting to get real close to her, and she puts him off. If we need a bigger table, we can get one, you know, like, just, and, and I appreciated that. Granted, I watched this movie second of the two that we're talking about today. So maybe I was carrying over some of that spunk and some of that fire that Lily Scarlet had. But I do, th- in terms of like that attitude, even though I did say earlier that they're two totally different characters. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. Forget what I just said. I don't know. But Well, they're still, they're both strong women. Yeah, but, but I did appreciate that she, she had some of her own agency and some of her own desires and beliefs and wasn't just falling in with a guy because that's what the movie said we needed to do. So I did like that. Yeah. And it is, it's, it's very, it's very positive in that it's not the kind of thing I would have expected. And what I love is that when you get to the eventual end of the movie and we're, you know, we've gone out of our way not to give a lot of details for people on these films because in the, both of these movies we should, we should inform you is that, uh, Strangely enough, both of them are available to watch on YouTube. I don't know exactly how that worked out. You can either buy this set of eight movies, which is pretty darn cheap to begin with, but both of these movies are on YouTube. Uh, I have posted uh, I've posted up links to them on uh, the Bloody Pit of Rods, so if you could just scroll back right before I posted this show, you'll find that uh, you can watch these movies for free right there on YouTube. So we're trying not to spoil these because they're pretty easy to seek out, but by the time Uranium Boom comes to its uh, final few scenes... The fact that this woman is someone who is respected by the story and she is such a strong character, when you get to the end of the movie and essentially she's now the boss, it's believable because she's not a pushover. She's not someone who, uh, she's got a mind of her own. And when you, Patricia Medina is a good enough actress where as the movie goes along, you're able to see very easily when she's having doubts and when she's pleased that things are going in a way that she wants them to go. That makes sense. And you know, she, she does voice her concerns with, uh, with Brad a few times throughout the movie. You know, you're so busy. You won't have a time to, you won't have time to live in the house you just bought. Yeah. Um, and she, she comes across as not just again, 
pretty wife. She she's her own character with her own desires and and needs and kind of does a little bit of snooping on her own and figures things out. And I like that about her a lot. Now let's talk a little bit about the meat of the story of this film and how it kind of makes it a, a more interesting film than I thought it was going to be, but it also makes it a hard movie to like in a way, uh, or I should say it makes the characters hard to like in a way. Okay. Once okay. we get to, you know, this is, this is where we get to the point where Brad and Gene, by the time they get back to, to tell, to tell Grady, Hey, we've got, we, we've got claim to this land. We're going to, we're going to be rich. We definitely are going to be rich. We're set. He brings Gene with him out there in the Jeep and at first, of course, Grady's pretty happy. But then he, then she says, "Listen, Brad and I were married last night." And I'm like, "Oh, holy crap! <laughs> you want to talk about a quick? You want to talk about a quick romance? Oh, holy crap! It's the '50s. We're married now. That haven't quit. But yeah. at the same time, of course, this is a gut punch that, that for Grady, um, who you got to man think about the whipsaw nature yeah. of. Oh my God! It's I'm, this is wonderful to have you here. This is amazing. Oh, what you're married? What? And you're married to my business partner? Oh, holy God. So things do not go... The, the, there's, a, uh, there's a rift between these two guys now. Uh, Brad uh, Brad knows that there's going to be. He's, he's prepared for it. But Grady leaves leaves them to it, goes on about his business, and it's, it's left up to uh, Brad to build the mining company and the, to the business and to uh, turn this into a going concern, which he does. So then we, the movie skips over a fair amount of time, and we learn that Brad has uh, has, turn, has turned this into a mining operation. He's, be, he's got a company. He's employing lots of people. Uh, he's become quite wealthy. But, of course, he's staying extremely busy because his idea, as he states it, is to be able to, uh, to buy up some of the smaller my, you know, the smaller mines that are in the area, and to consolidate and to become even more financially, you know, secure to a degree. This is when we realize that uh, new wife Jean is a little less than happy with the fact that he spends a whole lot of his time uh, earning the money and not very much time actually enjoying it. And this is when we learn that Brad, who is apparently still, you know, still a partner in the business, but has not been doing anything with it. But has been accepting the money that he that his uh, half ownership status would give him is concocting a pretty interesting plan. Oh yeah, he is hired. Yeah, yeah. This is this is where this is where it gets to the point where we're getting into uh, some nicely complicated stuff. Yeah, Grady's got some. Yeah, it's it's Grady that's got some. Uh, well, let's just say he's holding a grudge. Yeah. <laughs> And he is convinced that uh, Brad is the kind of guy who, as soon as he is in a bad way financially or starts running into into some kind of trouble or problems, then he's just going to drop Jean and walk away from the walk away from her. So his idea is to put a lot of pressure on him by essentially screwing him out of his money. So he hires two people who are who are who come into town. Uh, start talking to uh, Brad's character to, to Brad to Dennis Morgan's character about wanting to uh, buy up certain uh, mines in the area, trying to consolidate some stuff. Kind of the same thing. And they, they they're, they're talking about possibly making an offer to him, things like that. Because what they're trying to get into his head is the idea that there's going to be a rail spur that will be built closer to his mine and to these smaller mines. And this guy is aware of this. 
and is trying to buy up all this land so that he can make uh, more money when it becomes suddenly cheaper to ship all this stuff by rail. The idea is once Brad thinks that, because he's smart and he'll figure it out, he will make certain moves that will put him in a bad position financially, and then Grady will be able to wipe him out. Jane! Grady? Grady, Brad and I were married last night. Was he some kind of a gag? She's right. It's no gag, Grady. You know this is the girl I told you about? Not until it was too late. Just like that, huh? Let's go do a little town painting. Come on, partner, she's got a sister. No, no, you go celebrate. I'll stay here and work. Nice going. Is this what you really want? She can answer that better after our first anniversary. I doubt if it lasts that long. Look, Grady, I'm not going to say I'm sorry this happened. You knew there was nothing between us, nothing. Now, if you build something up in your mind, I can't help that. You can't let this mush your hair, not when we got a million dollars under our feet. You don't think I'm going to stay here now with the two of you? Grady, there's no reason for you to act this way. I'll send Charlie back with the jeep. Like I say, we're not going to get into the details of how this, this all ends up, but let's just say that is the point at which you start to realize that uh, maybe both these characters are not, maybe these characters are not nice people. And it starts to feel a little, a little uh, grittier than I would have expected. And it doesn't get, I will say this, it doesn't get as gritty as this story would have gotten if this movie was made 10 years later in the 60s, or especially 20 years later in the 70s. But it does get pretty interesting when one of the people that uh, Grady has hired is this attractive blonde woman who is very clearly doing her best to entice Brad into cheating on his wife to add to the problems. I think it's fascinating to watch this play out and to realize, oh, wow. So as much as I know that Grady feels wronged, now he is really doing some borderline unethical stuff here. And maybe just some flat-out unethical yeah. stuff, depending on how you look at it. Well, and, you know, I mean, you got to think, if this all worked out according to his plan... That's not going to win Gene back, right? As soon as she figures out that he orchestrated this whole thing, he's not going to get Gene back out of all of this. So, like, just, it's it's so... Mm. It's flawed. At least thing. I would it's hope. It's flawed. I would hope. Let's put it that way. Yeah. 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 Uh, but that's also kind of one of the reasons why I like it so much, like this movie so much, is that the characters are so... are painted in such a, a, a way that it's not, here's the good guy, here's the bad guy. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I really enjoyed that part of this movie. Um, it's shades of gray, and it's shades of gray yeah. at a time when I... And not just because the movie's in black and white, huh? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, sorry. I was... We've been recording for a while, folks. Sorry, that was that was a, a little punchy. <laughs> but, the, you know, you're, you're right. I mean, the the I hate to say it, but uh, there's that part of my brain as a movie fanatic who sees a black and white movie and doesn't expect certain... You know, I expect uh, characters to be kind of uh, painted in broad strokes, to be sure. kind of in black and white, you know, to kind of... It, to be uh, a, a little less nuanced than other things. Now, of course, I should be, I should be disabused of that considering the number of movies that I've seen over the years and, and realize that uh, that's not that's not always true. I mean, it depends on 
you know, what audience a, a story is being pitched to. If you're pitching it to a younger audience, yeah, you're going to paint with a broad brush and things are going to be fairly simplistic. But that this story is definitely not pitched to a younger audience. This is pitched to an adult right. audience. And so they're, they're having a, a fair amount of time spent with the melodramatic aspects of the story making you start to realize that I don't know if I... I don't know if I'm totally behind either one of these two guys. There are things to admire about both of them, but uh, I, I, I'll be honest. I kept waiting for Brad to break and to, and to, to sleep with the blonde. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly set up for that. Um, yeah. It's certainly set up for that. And the blonde plays her part really well. Um, she, she's really pushing for it. And at one point, Grady even, uh, what does he tell his people that Brad's got two weaknesses, women and money? Yes. Like, so, you know, I really was waiting for that to happen. I'm glad he didn't. It's a, it's a bit of a surprise. I, I, I have yeah. to admit, I thought that the film was going to go in that direction, and I don't think that gives too much away. But um, yeah, it, it, it's, imp- <laughs> it's impressive to note uh, in a movie of this type when a guy basically makes it extremely clear repeatedly that I'm not going to cheat on my wife, dear. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, without ever saying it. I mean, he's just like, that's not what this is about. And I love that moment <laughs> where uh, he, he has the... Uh, uh, I won't call her a vixen because the character is actually really, really painted, really painted as an intelligent character. She's uh, the, the actress is Tina Carver, and the, the character is not painted as some kind of dumbbell. She's a smart, intelligent woman, and uh, she's been invited out to their uh, to their house and is actually swimming in the swimming pool. And uh, she gets out of the pool and she's and it, it becomes clear that uh, Jean, the wife, is not around. And then Brad makes it clear that, no, 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 my wife knows that you're here. Yeah. This is not something we're doing behind her back. She knows ex- she knows that you're here right this second. She knows it. And that's when, I, I think that's the moment when it starts to sink into Tina that this is not going to happen. <laughs> this, this guy yeah. is not going to uh, sleep with me and cheat on his wife. This isn't going to happen. And I think that's the moment when I think he's making it as clear as he can be. It's like, no, 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 you don't understand. My wife knows everything that's going on. None of this is secret. You're not, you're not doing something that's going to turn me against my wife or vice versa. That's not the way this is going to work. Yeah. I thought that, I thought that was pretty impressive because that is once again, a little bit of, of nuance, uh, within these cross currents of relationships that, would have in a lesser in a lesser story, uh, a, a kind of shall we say a simpler script would have been. Uh, I don't even think it would have been attempted. They might have just brushed over it and just made it clear in in rather stark dialogue terms that you know, uh, lady, you're not going to get me to cheat on my wife. He just doesn't. He never says anything like that. He never comes out and states it plainly. He just makes it very clear. Look, this is just the way it is. It feel, it, I guess the best way to put it is it. I was I was shocked at how adult it felt. Mm, okay. And, and it, well, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And it, it leaves her no choice but to if she's going to continue to this particular attack, she does end up throwing herself at him in front of the wife, and that does become a thing, uh, yeah. an issue. But Brad still. He's not that bad of a guy, I guess. 
<laughs> well, I mean, he, do, he doesn't do anything. I mean, it's they, they yeah. do the only thing they, they do the only thing that they think will actually at least give the wife the impression that something is going on that shouldn't be going on. And it's like, right. even that exactly. doesn't fly for long because he's just not that kind of guy. But um, here's the thing. I, which of these two movies did you enjoy more? So it's tough because I really, really liked Uranium Boom a lot. And when we first started recording, I thought that's the one I'm going to say I like the most. But as we talked about it, I think I kind of like the other one better. Um, because I like what Patricia Medina brings to the table more in that one. Yeah. Um, but I, that's not to say I didn't dislike or I did not like uh, Uranium Boom. I really like Uranium Boom a lot. Uh, I will probably go back and watch that one again sooner just because it's shorter and I, I want to try to, I don't know, I just, I like that vibe, the aesthetic that it has, this kind of, you know, boom town kind of vibe. I, I just, I dig that for, for storytelling purposes alone. Um, but I do think I like the other one a little bit better. I for, from, from the beginning, I knew almost automatically, uh, as soon as I watched both of these movies for the first time, I knew that I liked Duel on the Mississippi better. Uh, it's it's just got so many elements that that I enjoy seeing in movies. Uh, sure, I, I didn't dislike Uranium Boom, but it is it is the movie does have an odd, it has an odd middle section where you start to realize that I'm not sure if I like these guys. I'm not sure if I like these characters because uh, a guy that you had a lot of sympathy for, William Tallman's character Grady, who seemed like such an incredibly nice guy who seemed like someone you could count on, then spends the bulk of his time the rest of the movie trying to screw over the other guy. I mean, like, going yeah. way out of his way. And it's it's this thing where, by the end, as things get wrapped up, the the attitude the movie's asking you to accept for both those characters has, has changed back to what it kind of was at the beginning of the picture. But... I still enjoy the movie. I still like it. Uh, I like both these movies, but yeah, I like Duel in the Mississippi a little bit better myself. Uh, I went, I went searching again. I don't know why I do this to myself. Every time we've covered these William Castle films from the fifties, I dart back to a copy of his autobiography. Step, you know, step right up, and I, mm-hmm. I, I try desperately to find any information in there about the about any of these movies. And of course, there's no details about any of them. It drives me mad. That's too bad. Yeah, I, and I, I run into that anytime because there's a number of William Castle films that he did before he did the horror films that, like, I would love to know more about Hollywood Story with Julie Adams. I'd love to know even more about, um, which is another film that he directed in the fifties. Yeah, uh, these films that we've talked about here, uh, they're just a handful of films that I'd like to know more about. You know, the behind the scenes, what he thought, what he was doing, and there's just not nearly as much. And, and it's probably because it doesn't have the same. Um, fanatic fan base that the monster movies have and, and, and you and I both know that we're both monster kids we know how that yeah. works but well a part of it also may be the yeah. fact that he was making so many movies so fast at the time that I don't know that he I don't know if he could separate the memories of one filming of filming one of these movies from the other effectively enough to be able to like relate some specifics about any of them who knows that's a good point that's a good point you know i mean there's a reason too that these movies are available in an eight an eight pack two disc set on mill creek as opposed to a prestige blu-ray release from arrow you know with three commentary (laughs) tracks by rod and troy you know just whatever (laughs) you know there's a reason for that um but that's not to say i didn't you know they're they're not worth watching i think they're phenomenal films oh they're they're Uh very well worth watching yeah 
and and this this isn't the favorite kind of podcast that I like to guest on is when I get to talk about movies that don't fall in the monster kid wheelhouse immediately so it's been a real treat to go through these movies and just kind of enjoy them for what they are and not worry about well hey there's that monster and who did the special effects and oh that music i've heard somewhere else although i did hear (laughs) some of this music somewhere else but uh, (laughs) oh yeah i think i think a fair amount of the music in both these films uh some of it's i think I, i think some of it has been repurposed from other pictures because there was a uh Especially for uranium boom, it's like I've heard some of there's these. There's a stinger cues at the before. very beginning of the. Yeah, at the very beginning of the film, there's a stinger uh, that's like, I know that, and I spent maybe like 20 minutes trying to figure out where I know that from. Which is the downside to loving film scores and collecting film scores the way that I do, is that if I hear anything that's like I know that from something, it takes me completely out of whatever I'm watching or doing <laughs> as I'm trying to figure out what it is. I couldn't figure it out, but there's a stinger at the very beginning. It opens with a piece of music from something else. Well, I, and it's not a universal production because it's Columbia, so yeah. it kind of narrows it down, but still. Well, that's the thing is. Um if you look at the the music credits on on Uranium Boom, uh, there are I think eight composers listed because it's all stock music that was written for oh, something no. else. Seriously, I mean, <laughs> oh no, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's not a score done by a single individual. It is you know stock is stock music. They they list uh, yeah, it's eight different composers that composed different pieces of stock music that they used in the film. So. And I recognize immediately at least four other names. Yeah. Um, you know, George Dooning, Misha, guy's last name I can't pronounce. Yeah, I... I oh, I'd love to try. Let, let, me, let, me, let me try to... Pre- uh, Misha Baklinenoff. Baklinenoff. I've now destroyed it. I've destroyed it completely. It, I should never have Misha tried. B. <laughs> Misha B did some of the music in this. Um, yes, there you go. And, <laughs> just, just use an initial. Yes. Yeah, uh, but and some of his music turned up in like some Harryhausen stuff and things like that. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's, yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing: these are like I say, we we I expected these foolishly expected them to be westerns. When they're not, it was all it was a it was nice. It was a good surprise. But I actually ended up enjoying these movies a little bit more than I enjoyed a couple of the westerns earlier on in the series. I was going to say the same thing, and I know it's kind of sacrilege because Richard Denning's in a couple of those earlier ones, and Richard Denning, Creature from Black Lagoon, I love that guy. But I think of the ones that we've watched, these are the ones that I'd be willing to talk with other people about again because I really dug them. Um, I'm glad I watched the other ones, and I'm sure I'll watch them again at some point, but (laughs) because, you know, going through my to-watch pile is so overwhelming, I just go back to things (laughs) I've already seen before. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's Richard Denning. You know, he's great. But these two, I think I really enjoyed the most, so I'm glad it worked out the way that it did with these two being the last two that we covered from this set. Yeah, I mean, we were just... Go out on top. Yeah, we were doing we were doing this chronologically, but at the same time, it works out that I think we kind of enjoyed these last couple a little bit more than the others. And, and who's to know if that's because uh, they were better scripts or more interesting stories or more or more interesting casts or if it has something to do with the fact that by this time, uh, Castle's getting to be, uh, you know, better and better at marshalling his forces and knowing how to put a put by, by the by the time he makes this, he's made so many movies. By the time he made these two movies, we're talking about, he's made so many movies that he knows he knows how to do this. He knows what he's doing, and he's actually finding interesting ways to do it a little cheaper than it might have otherwise been done. The idea that. Uh, 
there's not a you know the idea that uh, he's the same filmmaker when he makes Uranium Boom as when he made Klondike Kate is ridiculous. He's got more experience under his belt, and I think that maybe some of that may be what we're what we're reacting to when we see these two movies. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. Also, there might have been more money thrown at these movies than there were at the earlier ones, uh, depending on where things were and, and how much Katzman was willing to give up at the time. Yeah. So there just might be more going for it. Um, I also found the characters to be a little bit more nuanced in this, in these two, than the other ones. Yeah, agreed. And and I think that kind of lends itself to my enjoyment, too. Uh, you know, with the Uranium Boom, you're right, man. I The two guys, I mean, they're... One's a workaholic, the other one wants to get revenge on the guy for taking a girl from him that wasn't his to begin with. So he's an incel, basically. <laughs> he's really upset. <laughs> oh, God, I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but you you're know, right. It, oh, God. It, it's creepy, <sighs> you know, but really by the time the movie's over, you're like, well, at least Charlie didn't get hosed. You know, <laughs> yeah. he's, he's, Charlie, he's Charlie, comes out smell, Charlie comes out smelling like a rose, and so does Gene. So. Yeah, and he's got a new haircut. So. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to spend more time with Charlie in that movie. I wanted to see him walking around town, you know, big shot. Oh, you know. Well, there came a point when I was afraid, and I know this is this is going to sound strange, but there came a point in the movie where they uh, the movie's been going on for a little while, and then someone mentions Charlie, and I realize, hey, we haven't seen Charlie for like twenty minutes. Where the hell is he? And then he shows back up again, I'm, and I, there was this there was a, a bit of relaxation that came into my shoulders. And I was like, okay, good, Charlie's still around, good. <laughs> Um, but but yeah, all, all that you said there, I, I agree with you that these two I think were a lot more enjoyable, um, and just you know they're they're short and sweet, and I could see myself watching them again. Patricia Medina is fantastic in both of them. She really is. Uh, she's yeah. really good in Duel on the Mississippi, and according to the press kit that I found for Uranium Boom while we were talking, uh, she's referred to as being raven-haired. So yeah, she was a brunette. Okay. Um, at least she was when she made Uranium Boom. And so I'm betting, yeah, that red dye or the, the red hair was not natural, which is too bad because I got a thing for redheads, but I won't hold that against her. <laughs> All righty. Uh, well, let's, just, <laughs> let's, just, let's wrap this up by saying... Uh, I don't know where to go from there. Sorry I, I, about yeah, that. I don't um, know what to do with you now, man. You're just, you, you, you've gone off the reservation, as they say. Hey, dude, I'm single at this point, all right? Oh, so oh, any well. redheads who are looking... I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> You know, I am a Hall of Famer, so I can offer you that. <laughs> <laughs> so he's got that going for it. Wow. I don't. Um, <laughs> well, listen, see, I don't get to be I'm, like I'm going to throw you a lifeline. Derek, what is it? That, <laughs> what is it that you do on the weekends now? <laughs> uh, I spend most of my time extricating my foot from my mouth. No, from no, no. <laughs> we're doing that now. What do you do on the weekends? <laughs> Oh, man. As an outgrowth of the Monster Kid Radio podcast, on Saturday I host what we call the Monster Kid Movie Club over on Twitch, which you can find at, well, twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio or monsterkidmovie.club will take you there as well. Uh, starting at 11 a.m. Pacific, we start with a pre-show that's put together by Scott Morris from Disney Indiana most of the time. Uh, and then anywhere from six to seven or even eight films I've done before all through the day, uh, we've been trying to do themes lately. We've been trying to say, okay, today we're doing nothing but vampire films. Today we're doing nothing but this or that. Uh, they're all public domain films, but I really dig deep to try to find stuff that 
you might not have seen before. I've shown a Czechoslovakian version of Dracula in the past, for example. Ah. Uh, you know, some Mexican movies, some Spanish movies. Uh, as of this recording, I know this isn't going to go out in time, but as of this recording, tomorrow we're doing nothing but Todd Slaughter films. Ooh. It's a... Uh, Slaughter times six on Slaughter Saturday or something. I don't know. <laughs> See, that's a that's a good theme. I just I just uh, watched uh, the Blu-ray of uh, Face in the Window. Okay. And that movie's fantastic. Yep. And that's one I hope to show. So yeah, we're we're showing a lot of uh, just really cool monster or mystery films. Sometimes we've done just nothing but mysteries with like a Sherlock Holmes movie here and there. Uh, we've done haunted houses. Uh, we've done Lugosi, Karloff. Cheney. I'm planning a John Carradine day. Uh, so yeah, it, it's something that we do every Saturday. There's a live chat going. It's totally free to watch because it's on Twitch. So please feel free to join us, pop in, say hey, or not. You don't have to if you don't want to, but the <laughs> movies are still there. Uh, but there is a live chat going and the community that has come together around these films is just amazing. And it's some people from the podcast, some people who don't do anything with the podcast, but they just watch the movies. It's just a really cool group of people that have come together. And I would love for you guys and gals to be part of it. Uh, and of course, uh, you still, you still every week without, without fail, get monster kid radio out to the public. Yeah, I'm a busy dude, man. I got <laughs> So I've got the movie club on Saturday. On Tuesday, I do a mini version of that where we do science fiction films uh, from 3.30 till whenever. Uh, and then Thursday, every late Wednesday night, Thursday morning, there's an episode of Monster Kid Radio. Uh, we just put out episode, as of this recording, 521 oh, man. Uh, of the show. And, and I don't know, is this going to be going out in the month of May? Oh, definitely, yes. Okay. Then we are in the middle of our annual event, Cinco de Mayo. I'm sorry, Lucha de Mayo, <laughs> where we do luchador monster movies in the genre films. This year, we're spending a little bit more time with Blue Demon than we have in the past. But we've talked oh, about Santo films. That could be a, good time. That can be oh, a really good so time. cool. You know, Kenny from Old Mexico joins me. He's our Blue Demon guy. Uh, I'm trying to get Frank Schildner back to do a Mil Moscaris film. Cool. Uh, just. Just, I love these luchador monster movies. It's one of these subgenres that I could just get lost in for, for well, a month on Monster Kid Radio. <laughs> so so we do that. Uh, and just, yeah, we every week there's a new episode. Even if you don't like the Luchador movies, please consider checking it out. Because every week, Mark Matsky comes on to talk about Ultraman. Kenny, I mentioned earlier, usually does a look at famous monsters of film land. So there's still non-Luchador stuff for you this month. But, I mean, come on. Come for their segments. Stay for the luchadors. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I absolutely. That's a that is such an odd subgenre and one that I love to death. It is so goofy and enjoyable. And man, <laughs> I I want to put on a luchador mask and go fight monsters. That, that's what these movies do to me. You know, and I've got like four or five in the closet now. So you know, I could I could outfit a team. Well, see, let's go form our own champions of justice and, and fight crime. <laughs> well, see, that's what the weird thing to me is. That's of course how I got into the into the the luchador stuff uh, was the were, were the you know Santo versus the monsters kind of movies. Yeah. But then as I dug more and more into the first the Santo films and the Blue Demon films is just all, the whole subgenre. I started to discover that what I really love even more than that. Are the are the late sixties, early seventies, uh, Santo films and Blue Demon films where they're just they're just guys who essentially seem to be part of Eurospy movies. It's like that's my favorite period for those right? guys, huh? It's it it's just crazy, and there's just something 
cool about these luchadors walking around downtown Mexico City, uh-huh. night on the town with their ladies in their suits and their masks. There's just something cool about them. I don't know. It's, just, it's a fashion that I dig, man. I don't think I could pull it off 24-7 the way a lot of them did. A lot of they did, but uh, it's, wow. It's, it's amazing. I, I, I love, that, I love whole, that whole thing. But yeah. Oh, oh. man. So cool. Derek, I can't thank you enough for for finally coming on. I should have I should have made the call and we should have done this oh, uh, a man. good long while back. But uh, think we 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 finally closed the door on this uh, William Castle Western collection. Western, he says in air quotes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, well, that's what Mill Creek called it. So that's, ex- yeah. that's how people can find it on their own. And it's it's just it's just I'm just glad to be able to get the chance to talk to you again, man. This has been great. Thank you very much for coming on the show again. I, I appreciate you having me on, despite all the, well, I'm a Hall of Famer now stuff. Really, just and and and, and again, I'm just you're part I'm of just, the, you're part of the aristocracy now, man. I, I you, uh, you, oh, you, am I? You won't let me. You won't let me in. The, you won't let me buy a plantation in your area. This is really pissing me off. Uh, hey, you know, if it gets me hooked up with a redheaded Patricia Medina, <laughs> I'm in. No, you're gonna take that. You're gonna take that leap, aren't you? <laughs> in all seriousness. Um, I'm humbled that I got recognized in the Rondos this year. You, sir, there's one coming your way because you've been doing amazing work with Troy with the commentary tracks that you do. Uh, The amount of research and love that you bring to those commentary tracks is only equaled by the amount of research and love that you bring to the podcast themselves. And... I, I think your time is coming, brother. I, I really do think that. Well, I do have plans to get a Rondo. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to steal one of Mark Maddox's. Uh, he has, hey, that's cool. You know where he, he has lives, too, right? He has too many. And so okay. he, he's, and he's, I've conned him into saying that out loud. So now I got it on tape and I can therefore go and take one and have strict justification as soon as I'm brought in front of the magistrate. So it's all good. Well, you, you know what? I've got a couple of luchador masks. We'll suit up. We'll sneak in. <laughs> Nobody will know. It was us. He'll he'll, he'll never know until I start posting the photographs of me holding the damn thing. (laughs) After after I've scratched out his name and stenciled in my own. Right? That would be a mistake. From the neck up, they all look alike, right? So we can just... Uh, I'll crop the photograph properly. You're right. You know, I actually have a keychain that is a a replica of a Mil Moscos luchador mask that fits perfectly (laughs) on the Rondo Hatton Award. So we could just put a little luchador mask on yours and Uh, nobody, you know, nobody will know. You know what? We should probably not not be recording this. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say you're recording this, right? So, yeah, we're just hypothetically. This is all, I would say allegedly, but we haven't done it yet. So, yes, uh, hypothetically, this would be a good idea. Derek, thank you once again, brother. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we will talk to you again. Oh, we'll talk to you again soon, okay? Yeah, we got to get you back on MKR, man, at some point. We'll talk to you later, anytime, brother. Anytime, anytime. <laughs> Why, well, howdy, partner. How can I help you today? I'm looking for a movie to watch, but I... What in tarnation was that? Never you mind, son. Now let's focus on your needs here. I'm looking for something to watch, but I want something I ain't seen yet. Ooh, watch yourself there, partner. Why, I reckon you've come to the right place. You've come to the place where the East meets the West. The East meets the West? Where is that, and how's that going to help me? Ooh, that was close. You better duck. I don't understand what's going on here. It's like I'm in a place where 
Kung Fu and Cowboys have combined somehow. Well, that's right, partner. You're going to find some offbeat films here, no doubt about that. Host Rigor is going to take you on a journey to discover not only the hundreds of amazing martial arts films of Hong Kong's The Shaw Brothers, but also Italy's Spaghetti Westerns. Spaghetti Westerns? Is that some kind of joke? No, sir. Western movies made in Italy from the 60s to the 80s are called Spaghetti Westerns, and that's a fact. You can find the East Meets the West on all the major podcasting apps, as well as havenpodcast.com. Well, thank you kindly, sir. You done settled my entertainment needs, even though it's a tad dangerous in your store. Like I said, go to your podcasting apps or go to havenpodcast.com. The East Meets the West. Your new favorite ranch to hang out at. Three animated TV series, three animated feature films, over 50 years of stories, over 150 characters, 10 core comic book titles, 27 spin-off comic book titles, nearly 30 limited series spin-offs, and of course, four feature films. Well, okay, five if you count Captain America Civil War, or maybe it's like four and a half. The Avengers are a Marvel Comics mainstay, and no matter how many films crush it at the box office, or how many more Avengers spin-off titles come out, it all comes back to that original comic series that Stan Lee and Jack Kirby thrust upon the world in 1963. And I'm going to read the entire run. My name is Derek M. Cook, and I'm a recovering comic book fan. Over on my YouTube channel, Comicstalgia, you can join me as I make my way through the comic with my Reading the Avengers YouTube series. Every episode, I'll take a look at an issue of the comic, share my thoughts about the story, its artwork and characters, and reflect on how the issue may have impacted or inspired other facets and corners of all things Marvel. I'd like to invite you to join me as I make my way through every single issue of this iconic comic book. Assemble with me at tinyurl.com slash readingtheavengers. Or look up Comicstalgia on YouTube where you can find all the previous episodes and even subscribe to make sure you don't miss anything while we're reading The Avengers. That's tinyurl.com slash readingtheavengers. Enough said. Well, that's going to belatedly bring our series of four podcasts covering eight movies directed by William Castle to a close. Derek and I had a good time doing this. Um... We should have probably gotten it done a little quicker than we did, but then procrastination and forgetfulness does creep into uh, any podcaster's life. Really ask any of us just how many things we have on the table. And pursuant to that idea, let me tell you, uh, Derek is a busy guy. If uh, you're not uh, hip to the podcasting thing, of course, he does the Monster Kid Radio, but he has so many other ventures on the boil out there. He's got a uh, YouTube project called Reading the Avengers, uh, which I think you probably just heard an ad for, and also another YouTube venture called Dice Monster Dice, role-playing games, monster, well, mon not necessarily monster role-playing games, but monster games of all types, Karloff slash... Lovecraft riff on the name of that one. Uh, and of course, he's an author. He does uh, half a hundred different things. The fact that he's got so many irons in the fire really kind of puts people like me to shame. But we do what we can 
and then we move on and do what else we can do right after that. So if you've got anything to say about this episode or any of the episodes Derek and I did together or anything else that's been going on here on The Bloody Pit, the email account is thebloodypit at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know what you might like to have Derek and I talk about again here on the show. Ah, but I bet I'll probably be a, a guest over on Monster Kid Radio again before we talk about anything here on the Bloody Pit again. I don't know how he fits it all in, folks. How do you do it? Anyway, I want to thank Derek again. I want to thank you for listening to the show. And we will talk to you again next time. I got a big Geiger counter, it's a pretty good rig And the needle starts clicking, that's where I'm gonna dig Honey, money, honey, the kind you fold Honey, money, honey, rock and roll Rake it in and bait it up like hay Have a rocking good time and throw it all away In the middle, spare wheel on the back. Man, don't you know I'll be hard to stop when I find that big uranium rock? Money, money, honey, the kind you fold. Money, money, honey, rock and roll. Rig it in, bait it up like hay. Have a rockin' good time, throw it all away. Yes, that's me in my long Cadillac We're heading down the road and I ain't coming back Ain't no red light gonna make me stop But I found that big uranium rock Money, money, honey, the kind of fold Money, money, honey, rock and roll Break it in, bait it up like hay Have a rockin' good time, throw it all away